1: Living in a technology bubble, and there are signs it is deflating. NFTs are way down. IPOs are having problems. There are layoffs at startups. Funding is tightening. Netflix and Facebook, or Meta as in Meta Stupid, those two companies alone are down well over $200 billion just this year. All of these once overhyped apps like Uber and Grubhub are going nowhere. The chances of them ever being sustainably profitable are slim. Spotify is $3 billion in the hole with little hope of that ever really changing. But really, has there been any technology in the past decade hyped as much as A.I., and I always put it in quotation marks, just a flag that we don't know what it means, and that it's mostly just talk. Well, or a lot of it has been. Do you remember that book, The Second Machine Age by McAfee and Brynjolfsson and their prediction that A.I. was going to change so fast it would lead to troubling job loss and unemployment? The consultancy McKinsey said the same thing, and so did the World Economic Forum. By 2018, AI hype was off the chain. It was everywhere. Remember self-driving cars and how they were right around the corner? That was going to be AI too. At my last job, I was lucky to become friends with Samantha Kleinberg, a professor of computer science at Stevens Institute of Technology and an all-around badass. She's like the Nicki Minaj of CS. Funding bodies like the National Science Foundation... And National Institutes of Health drop millions of dollars on her from helicopters because her work is so eminently practical and fundable. She can swim in her academic research account like Scrooge McDuck. Kleinberg sits at the interesting intersection of computer science, statistics, and the philosophy of causality. She is interested in the question of how we know what causes what. And most of her work has focused on healthcare, so that is something of an expertise too. No one has taught me more about the gritty reality of contemporary AI systems than Samantha Kleinberg, and what she has to say is often gloomy. AI is unlikely to improve as quickly as hype mongers have been claiming for the last decade for a bunch of reasons Kleinberg and I discuss in our conversation together. Kleinberg is the author of Why, A Guide to Finding and Using Causes. And in this interview, we talk about a book she's been working on, which examines how we can use data in our lives to make better decisions. This turns out to be an extremely complicated issue. But one thing is clear, you should throw your Fitbit in the trash. Kleinberg and I talk about how we can do a better job consuming information and, like, consumer electronics. I had a blast, as always, talking to Samantha. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited. thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. So this book you're working on sounds uh, cool. Why don't you tell us what it's about and what you're trying to do with it?
0: Yeah, so um, I'm a computer scientist. Uh, Well, I'm a weird computer scientist who is trained as a computer scientist, but never did computer science by itself. I've always combined it with biology and health in some way. Um, And so I've been focused on applications and the idea that Computers are going to make things better somehow. That you know, we're going to help doctors make decisions or help patients make decisions about their health. Um, and it's very focused on like the end user doing something with the stuff I produce. Um, and then a few years ago, I realized I'd never actually tested can people do things with the stuff I produce. Um, in computer science, we evaluate things based on you know ground truth. Do we find the stuff that we expect to be there or that we know is there? Um, you know, it's score algorithms that way. But we're we don't traditionally test. Can someone make a decision with them? Right. If I give you this information, can you figure out what to have for lunch today? Um, You know, Mm -hmm. your glucose or, you know, can you decide on a treatment with your doctor for your diabetes? Like, is it going to help you do those things? Um, And so I started testing that and realized stuff I was producing does not help people do those things um, and was not helping my collaborators who are doctors, wasn't helping lay people. Um, so for the last four years, I've been collaborating with cognitive scientists and looking at how people actually use technology and how they can do it better.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, so you're not alone here, right? I mean, I would say like, yeah, it's not just that you're producing data that no one's using correctly. No, it, I'm, not, I'm
0: not unique to not be... <laughs> 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 my problem, but it's unique in that. I think a lot of people don't actually care about the end user or they don't realize yeah. the end user is a person, right? So in computer science, there's, if we find this complex model that's, you know, the more accurate it is, the better the output's gonna be, which is true perhaps if the if it's a machine making a decision and using that complex model, right? If it's accurate, you yeah. can make sense of this complex thing and there hasn't been appreciation that actually there's a human involved in that loop, right? Someone is overseeing it or making sense of the information or has to understand that information um, and that hasn't been all part of you know the conversation or evaluation process. It's not one of the things we prioritized. Yes, there's work on um explainability and that kind of thing, but it's explainability for machine learning practitioners. It's not explainability mm-hmm. to my dad who's an interior designer or you know, my mom who's a school teacher. None of these things like they tell you about the features in the machine learning model, my parents aren't gonna understand that. Right. Yeah. So it's really separate from like the actual people who are not experts in the algorithms, and who maybe aren't experts in a domain either, right? You know, yeah. maybe you're not a clinician, you know, with all this experience about stroke or diabetes. They're just a person who wants to figure out, you know, how do I invest my savings for retirement, or how do I pick a college? Um, and we're not optimizing for those kinds of decisions.
1: Yeah, and something else you talk about in in some of your work and in, in conversations we have is that like a lot of people who work in in these fields and CS and stuff, they like to use data that's like super clean and has actually like almost nothing to do with the real world, right? So it's not even like they're not concerning users. It's also like they're not necessarily using like real world data in their projects.
0: Do I have that right? I mean like the top person in you know in the field of causality, right? Is Judea Pearl, who doesn't do anything with data. Um he's done lots of great foundational work in theory but has yeah. never you know, actually tested it on real, t- whether the data is realistic or not, hasn't applied it to actual data. And I think your understanding of what's important or you know, what the problem is, is totally different. you know, If you actually see what the data is, or you know, if you walk into the ICU and see you know, what my collaborator sees in the ICU, and you see that he's interrupted every two minutes with someone giving him x-rays or something, and he has to make a decision under time pressure, you see yeah. the patients there and families there, and you have an appreciation of What the constraints are and what the problem is and it's not like someone is looking at your model and has like two hours and you know really relaxing room to make sense of it and like really get into the details right they need the information to be easy um and we haven't thought about like this trade-off between maybe we should give up some accuracy to make it you know optimized for a fast decision or something like that right yeah Um, so i say it's sort of unique i don't mean that it's like unique to my work that i haven't thought about it but that I had this idea that I, I was like close to application, that because I'd been doing all this applied stuff, that like I didn't have this gap, right, that other people had. Right. Um, you know, which was sort of a rude awakening. And also because I'd worked on causality, right? And you see all the failures of prediction that doesn't involve cause relationships. And the whole selling point of causality is like we can do stuff with this information, right? We can yep. figure out policies, we can figure out what you should do, and it's gonna be robust because it's not based on some flimsy association it's based on an actual cause that has the capacity to do something. And so then mm. realizing like, actually the information doesn't help people make the choice to do that thing is really upsetting.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you've actually done work and you've drawn others works that shows like people make worse decisions when they, well, that, sometimes when they like, when they have causes, right?
0: This year it's become less depressing to give talks. And so for four years, whenever I gave people more information, they did worse than if they just used the information they already had like, you know, that, that's in their brains. And yeah. so whenever gay gave people, no matter how simple the causal model was, they were making worse choices. And it only happened in situations that were familiar. Um, and mm-hmm. so psychology also has its own problems that a lot of psychology is focused on, you know, like the basic science. Let's make sure that people don't bring in any background knowledge. You're gonna make decisions yeah. about, you know, aliens and conveyor belts and made up diseases, um, which is great if you wanna understand, you know, like a basic phenomenon in the brain. Yeah. But you can't make the leap from that to like, you know, how you're picking a college, right? Or investing savings or, you know, choosing medication, because there, yeah. you have all this other stuff going on. And you're using that to interpret to first decide if you even believe the information I show you um, to figure out how to use it, right. And you also have to, you have to use information, you can't just use what I give you, because otherwise, the guidelines would be too long, we don't tell people like, you know, pick this particular salad, you know, for lunch, we say like eat more vegetables or have more protein. And you have like actual choices that you have to translate that into and figure out like, do I have the eggs? Do I have oatmeal, like all these things. And if you had no knowledge, you couldn't make that decision. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. nothing like these sort of, you know, constrained settings that people were using before. Um, And so i found that actually people who didn't have diabetes made better choices about diabetes than people who did. Because they were treating it as this like, you know, it's like aliens, they don't have the personal experience, they just use the information I gave them. People with diabetes were thinking, like, even if the right answer is to make two changes to my lifestyle, well, maybe it's easier to make one change. And so I'm going to do that instead. Yeah, tell them, like, you know, pick the choice that's most likely to achieve the outcome. They don't do that. Or, you know, people
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um, express preferences. There's a lot of people who think medication is always bad. You should never take medication like. it's (laughs) it's <laughs> right. never gonna be the right answer for them, because they're like, people take too many medications as it is. And so you know, you should do something else. And they're not, you know, uh, they're just not going to use that part of the information. Um, mm-hmm. And so this year after, you know, we had all these studies, with really, it was just very depressing news that like, <laughs> <know>.
1: humans suck, <laughs> and, basically,
2: right? Well, yeah. in,
0: like 10 years of like, really need to find causes causes are so important. And I'm like, in all my grand proposals, like causality is the thing we care about. And then yeah. actually, well, causality wasn't really helping people and they're making worse decisions. Right. So it's, it's tough to give talks like that, right? Where just, <laughs> it, I mean, it's all bad news. But the end of my talk, just yeah. like, well, causes are important, but they don't actually help people. Um, and then for a while, like the best we could do was we can kind of inoculate people against the negative effects of causality, um, mm. by helping them realize how little they actually know.
2: Um, okay. And
0: they're receptive to it, but they still don't know how to use it or combine it with what they already know, right? So there's mm-hmm. a
2: conflict.
0: Um, and then this year, finally, we were actually able to help people make better choices with causal information. So I have a much more positive story to share, which is exciting. Um, so I want to
1: hear more about that because I was also thinking about, you know, other research I know, I you know, I've read and known about over the years. And I was like, so here, here's my pitch, right? I read in something you wrote that uh, vitamin C does not prevent colds. But I know for a fact that vitamin C does does prevent colds, and I don't care what you say, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is to say, like, we all come into these situations with these very strong, like, yep. biases and motivated reasoning and all these things that kind of, like, put us on a course no matter what, you know, like, what we bump into in the informational world very often, right? But are are there ways to kind of counter countervene that? Or, I mean, like, you know, are there... What are you finding and what's the good news, I guess, is is my question.
0: So the good news, which is very limited, um, (laughs) is basically if we give people only the information that they need to choose the right answer for the decision. So, for example, you know, we ask people, I've done this in lots of different domains, not just health. We've done like reducing your carbon footprint, um, uh, saving for retirement, improving someone's job satisfaction, um, you know, reducing risk of COVID, all these things. Um, And so you have this larger model that has lots of things, lots of knobs you can toggle, right? There are lots of ways you can try to prove your employee satisfaction. Um, But we give people vignettes and a few different options um, of what they can do. Mm -hmm. And if we include like only the path, so, you know, the set of steps that gets you just from, you know, a cause to the effect um, that gives you the right answer. And we give them only that part of the diagram, then they actually do better than nothing and they do better than the complex diagram. Um, okay. And if we gave them the whole diagram, they perform exactly the same as if we gave them no information at all. Um, yeah.
1: Because their mind's like freaking out at all the information.
0: Yeah. Like no one, no one knows what to do with it. I can send yeah. you some pictures after and like, they're just very <laughs> overwhelming and they're not, they're not fun. Um, yeah. What was interesting was after we did that, so we did a few different iterations and we tested what if we just highlight the part that's right. And actually people are able to ignore the incorrect or the information that's not useful. Um, yeah. But like the effect is a little bit lower. Um, if we add in just a little bit of information, uh, just you know one more causal relationship or two more, that it becomes as bad as if we give them the whole diagram. Wow. Um, and so we'll, and what was surprising to me was I sort of made it hard for us. I included extra information that like directly contradicted answer choices. So in the graph, it would be like reduce alcohol, and one of your options is like have a glass of wine after work. Um, And still like it got worse. (laughs) And so any (laughs) any information beyond what like people need blinders, you know, that just just points to the right answer, nothing distracting, totally focused. Um, And then we did a version. So some people think that like, you know, maybe I want all the information or like I can handle the truth. Right. And so you could imagine like there have been papers like this. There's like, there's one that's about like, explanation fiends and foes or mavens mm-hmm. um and some people want all the information some people don't but that's a different question than does the information actually help them right it might be yeah. satisfying to you and you feel informed and you feel good about yourself that like you've read you know through all the data before making a decision um, so we did another version that we haven't published yet where we gave people the choice instead of randomizing them
2: yeah.
0: um, and the results looked exactly the same as if we randomized them and so people nice. have no idea how much information they actually want. <laughs> and so the people, and they, they made oh. different choices by, based on topic. And people were distinguishing, like, no, for climate, you know, for carbon footprint, I want this much information for voting. Mm-hmm. I want this much, or, you know, for donating to charity, I'll take, you know, the complex diagram. And so they're not just saying, like, I need all of it or none.
2: Um, Interesting. But it's,
0: like, it didn't matter at all. We could have just randomized them. Um, people are not good at figuring out you know, what they actually need or what would be useful for, for each choice, even though they're actually actively making different choices for the different topics. Um, yeah, But I think it goes back to we're really bad judges of what we actually know. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, we've seen that in An,
1: and need, apparently, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. No, it's uh, people can't handle the truth. They think they want it. <laughs> it no, no idea what you, you can't need. handle the truth.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: The recent paper title was called It's Complicated. <laughs>
1: So, you know, you have a degree in computer science. You work in a department of computer science. But I also think of you as a kind of uh, philosopher of causality. I feel like you've hung out in those circles. So how'd you end up working in this kind of bizarre space that's, you know, somewhat computer science, you know, also kind of philosophy, um, you know, and we can get into your applications, which often have to do with health. But yeah, how'd you end up in there?
0: I think I've always been a misfit in whatever area I've been in. Um, and so even when I was in computer science or as an undergrad, I did computer science and physics. Um, I was in a bioinformatics lab. And so it was never like just, you know, computer science at any time. It was computer science and bioinformatics or computer science and biomedical informatics and looking at human health. There was always something else that was motivating it. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like computers by themselves are quite boring. um and it's the things that computers let you do and the applications that are motivating for me uh we can have a conversation about applications which is another project that i'm working on um and the sort of theory application divide across many fields um but yeah so it's always been a combination and i think at my core i'm very interdisciplinary i'm not you know interested in just one area um i think for causality I initially started reading, you know, Hume. I went back to Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started off thinking, I started off from a biology angle, actually. All the papers described causes, and no one described what they actually meant by a causal relationship in the biology papers. They just yeah. mean causality. And I was like, well, what do you actually mean by that? Um, right. felt like I didn't really understand causality, and philosophers seem to have thought about it for a long time. And so I started reading philosophy papers and going to this interview interdisciplinary philosophy and science conference. Uh, i been going to that for like, since I think 2008 or something like that. Um, you no, know, maybe 2006. Um, but yeah, so reading all the philosophy and then just sort of fanning out from looking at all the other different fields that are looking at causality, right? And reading about, you know, legal reasoning and how do juries come to decisions about causality? Um, I was reading psychology papers at the time. I didn't see it as part of my work, but I was interested in, all the different angles and ways people use to get at causality in the different fields. Um, and I thought it was helpful and, you know, I could take inspiration from, you know, philosophy and all these different areas to figure out, um, what I could do in computer science. Nice. So I don't really have like an academic home. I I go to conferences in biomedical informatics and philosophy, cognitive science conferences. Um, and so, yeah, I've been in lots of different areas. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I was wondering, I just wondered where your, your, um, your focus on like causes came from. And it sounds like you're saying you're right, reading these bio papers and you're like, what does this even mean? Right?
0: Yeah. Well, it was, what does it mean? Do you know what you mean? Like,
1: Yeah. Do you um, know what you mean? Yeah. yeah. Because I, I, I didn't
0: think people actually did. Um, yeah. and, and you see it a lot in the language that in the, intro or abstract in the title, there's causality in the conclusion. There's causality in between. It's all association and correlation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this idea that like, people think this is an important thing or else the word wouldn't be there. Right. And so there's some value to claiming it's causal. But no one's actually describing what it is that makes them think that they've identified a causal relationship. And I found that super unsatisfying.
1: Mm -hmm. So in the book you're working on, I mean, it seems that there's two kinds, two sides of the problem. Uh, on the one side, we've got technology and information, and then on the other side, we've got human beings, and you know we're all messed up in all kinds of ways. But let's start with the technology first. So, uh, where do you think, kind of like, you know, in the book that you're writing, you're, you're kind of introducing AI and where it's at, but also its limits. So, like, wh- where do you think the strengths of this stuff is, and also what are some of the limits that you know people might not realize?
0: Oh, what? How much time do we have? <laughs> um, I mean, it's hard. To, I think it's actually hard to separate the the human technology thing because a lot of the limits yeah. are the limits are expectations, right? And so, yeah. for example, like if you look at Watson, right? And so, you know, Watson was a complete failure in what they hold said. on.
1: You you got to tell people what Watson is, and <laughs> I wanted. To, I'm so glad we're going to talk about Watson. I love Watson. You love it. Failure. <laughs> I, a failure that it is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So like Watson is my new Google flu. Um, but so like Google Flu is also a famous failure that Google was um, predicting cases of the flu. They were doing it really successfully and doing better than the CDC. And then all of a sudden it just completely failed because they were using search keywords. And there's no actual relationship between you searching for the flu and having the flu. Mm-hmm. And the system isn't able to predict the failure. It just fails all of a sudden. you got lots of bad press and you can't predict it.
2: Uh-huh. Um,
0: Watson, the goal was IBM had, had this uh, Project Watson for playing Jeopardy that was you know reading lots of articles, creating databases, um, you know gathering all this knowledge right to answer questions. Um, and so that was a sort of like showcase and then their idea was like, well, you know doctors have questions too, right? And we can read medical records. What's the difference between medical records and Wikipedia? Like yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, if you've seen a medical record, you're just like laughing um, at this because the idea is ludicrous that you would actually read it in, in the same way. Um, yeah. It resembles English in no way whatsoever. There's lots of abbreviations. There's, like, people copying and pasting from one record into another. Um, it's a complete, like, mess. <laughs> um, yeah. And just figuring out, like, there are tons of people working on just parsing the text in medical records and trying to make some sense of them. Like, identifying the yeah. time. And so Watson assumes that you have text that's factual and you just have to find stuff in the text, organize relationships between things, you know, and that's an achievable task, right, you can sort of extrapolate from, you know, tests on Wall Street Journal corpus and things like that to this text, because they're all like structured English language, whereas medical records are like, you know, family history, we have a hypothesis that this is what's happening with the patient, oh, maybe that's not what's happening with the patient, like, there's all this complexity, and it wasn't made to figure out like, what's true and what's not true, Um, Mm -hmm. which is what you actually need in the medical text, Um, and then figuring out like the sequence of times, right? And so the problem there was they'd sold it as like, we're gonna get new insights from the data you know, using this. Um, they yeah. were never actually able to get the data into any system. And so they had doctors creating simulated patients that they used to train their system, um, which like the reason I say it's, you need to understand humans to think about whether it's a failure or not. It's a failure based on what they sold it as, right? There was absolutely yeah. nothing to gain from it. People spent tens of millions of dollars. It didn't do what they sold it as doing, however, they were able to use it in other places and it was as good as the doctors which if you're in a place that doesn't have enough doctors or you know it's a rural community in another country right that could be a valuable thing right to be able to take mm-hmm. that knowledge and replicate it somewhere else uh, cheaply and scale it up right and so if they'd sold it as that and like you know replicating expert knowledge and bringing it to new places that could have been like a great success story um, yeah. instead, like they had absolutely no understanding of what was achievable in this scenario and, you know, mm-hmm. sold dreams that were just, <laughs> yeah.
1: So, um, did I ever tell you I met Watson in quotation marks?
0: What does it mean to meet Watson? <laughs> yeah,
1: well, so I got, I got taken into the IBM's New York City Watson office and they, I basically got taken to the floor that was like a PR marketing uh came to, to like getting
0: them like, like <laughs> you're kidnapped. <and laughs>
1: uh it was a very weird event. And it was like the whole floor was basically built to seduce CEOs from companies yeah. to buy their services. And there was this weird like wall. It was a big TV screen where there were all these occupations. And like if you, you talk to which one you wanted to step forward and it would tell you how watson was going to solve their problems and it was like
0: chefs they were meeting for like watson for oncology that's like mrs Yamamoto or something like that she goes in and then she has this discussion and she wants these like you know she has these constraints for her treatment and so it finds a medication that respects her preferences like
2: you can't do that
1: (laughs) right and then the, the event that after we all got to you know meet watson uh, the event was like transhumanists and like AI hype mongers, like talking about like how in the future we're not even going to know the difference between computers and humans and all this kind of stuff. And so it was like perfect, oh, was, like, kind of like
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. It was awful.
0: Did you get to ask Watson uh, questions, or it was just like marketing videos? We, it was, it was like you could, but it was pretty scripted.
1: Uh, it was a pretty controlled scenario. You so you know? weren't
0: like here's my medical record, you know,
1: what do you know? <laughs> yeah. What, what do I not know about myself?
0: Yeah,
2: exactly. So,
0: so I mean, I,
1: I have a lot of sympathy and, you know, the whole, my whole field in a sense is about breaking down these lines, um, between the human and, and machines. But I, it sounds like what you're saying is, um, part of the problem here is the expectations we have about the machines, exactly. right?
0: The same thing is right with personalized nutrition, right? So there was this idea for a while, that the problem is we don't have the right data, nutrition. We don't have the technology. If we only knew like what would be the right diet for you, like we could solve all of your problems. Right. And now there's really research that we kind of can, there's some, you know, issues with it. It's imperfect. Like everything is, but there's really exciting research about personalized diets. Um, Mm -hmm. However, there's like no understanding whatsoever of the human component of figuring out what to eat or what constraints you have and that you're simply not going to listen to these diets, right? Like you have children, you have other things going on. You're not going to be like, you know, I hate grapefruit, but you tell me I should eat grapefruit. So, you know, that's what's up. yeah. <laughs> um, right. Like, and you eat with other people, you have issues with cost and yeah. it takes to prepare stuff. Like there's no understanding of any of that right? It's totally viewed as a data machine learning problem. And once we get the right diet, like, you know, check, we've solved it, right. And mm-hmm. so there's a total gap between, you know, the the human. And why I say like, you have to understand the human to understand the failure is no one's examining what do people actually want? What information do you want about diet? Like, what do you want to be told? How would you integrate that? Yeah. Into the day? It's very much like one way from we figure out, you know, the nutritional guidance, we give it to people, They'll use it. They'll make better choices and not like, you know, what do people actually want from technology? Can we deliver that? And like, you know, let's iterate on what would be acceptable to people or useful to people and what we can actually achieve.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, at some points when I read you, it's even more depressing because like, (laughs) we don't. (laughs) We don't know what we want or need either, right? I mean, no. we've already kind of touched on that. No. And so, like, I, you had, like, this nice part of the text where you're talking about, like, three key problems. And it's like, we have trouble combining, I, if I understood them right, it's like, we have trouble combining new information with old knowledge. Yeah. We have trouble translating information into action. So you can yeah. give me a bunch of stuff, I don't know what to do with it, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, like, you and get then exercise we, guidance, right? Like, no one really knows, you know, how to translate that or what, like, you know, should you exercise in the morning, in the evening? Is swimming better than running? Like,
2: yeah. It-
1: right, and so, like, what I mean, do you feel like is it is part of what you're saying? And it, I mean, this, you could have imperial ambitions here. I hope you do. So, like, part of what you could be saying is that we would need, like, a whole new kind of user design-focused portion of of this kind of AI research or something like that. And what I mean by that is, like, we really need to focus on, like, how how this stuff is used in the real world. Is that fair? Is that part of what you're up to?
0: I, I briefly thought you were going to say design thinking, and I got a little bit concerned about where this was no, going. No,
1: no, no. I didn't do it to you. No. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, no. I've, I, so, I've been in... Advocating for instead of explainable AI, usable AI, and thinking about what is useful actually. Okay. Mean? Who are the users? How are they using it? What does it mean to evaluate right usability yeah. of AI? Um, you know, I'm developing like one of my students metrics for causal inference that'll be based on um, usability. And you might find that some models that are the most accurate are not the best if you're concerned about usability. I see. And usability is going to be different. It's not just like kind of person use this. Um, you know, understand how it functions, which is traditionally what usability is. Like, you know, yeah. can you do it to do a computing task in a lab? It's like can you use it in your actual environment to make the decision that you actually want to make? So can a doctor mm-hmm. use it in the you know, resource constrained setting that they have? Can a person with diabetes actually use it in the real world to make choices about how to dose their insulin or, you know, what to eat and those kinds of things?
1: Yeah. So one of the chapters you're writing on is, is called Machines are a not taking over, which yeah. heartened me a great deal. What what do you mean by that?
0: I mean, <laughs> so if you look at like the the hand wringing over AI, right, um, most of it's about driverless cars and yeah. they're going to replace all the truck drivers and it's going to be a huge problem. Everyone's going to be out of business um, or the radiologists. That's the other the other favorite. Um, 2021, uh, is a great year because it's five years since, uh, Jeff Hinton said, uh, luckily on video, um, quite arrogantly that, right. In five years, we're not going to need any more radiologists. You should stop training them. And like, even if we need some, like there are enough that exists now. We don't need any more. Um, and then there are tons of failures, right. Of AI or deep learning and radiology, um, for lots of, of reasons. Um, but, like, none of those things are coming to pass. And I think people have a lot of fears and anxiety um, without understanding how stupid a lot of methods are, um, yeah. how little they can do. And so, you know, people working on like robots and things like that, there is one um, that it can navigate in really interesting ways it can't open a door, like, yep. you know, it can navigate the room, it doesn't have a hand, it can't, like, get out of it, right, um, mm-hmm. and so, like, I think that because of, you know, the way people communicate science and do those things, we focus on, right, the hype and the possibility, and not, like, the major limitations of these things, right, yeah. Um. and so I think there's very little understanding, and people see, like, the possibility and hope and kind of expand on that, right, with their ideas of, yeah. like, you know their feelings about what could be or should be, um, and not a lot of ideas about like how badly these things work and how easy it is to break them. Um, yeah. You know, like, I'm so sorry, I'm what, you... what the original question was? I feel like the
1: no, no, that was perfect. <laughs> uh, no, and it, it, someday you and I will write a beautiful uh, essay about Ray Kurzweil. Uh, <laughs> uh about um his vision of the technological singularity which is when you know ai becomes super intelligent more intelligent than us and then maybe we'll like upload our break consciousnesses into space or something who knows but
0: part of that like you know like the people magazine like stars are just like us and like there are people celebrities wearing clothing that you know regular people are wearing i think of it as like computers they're dumb just like us (laughs) like (laughs) yeah (laughs) we're really bad at making choices. Computers are not that much better. In a lot of the cases they're trained on our bad choices, right? Yeah. And they're just replicating them. Um, and there's not like some sort of fancy magic that's going to make suddenly like things that are not computable, computable. So um, yeah. one of the really interesting papers I read in the last few years was about predicting romantic desire in uh, using machine learning for that. It can't be done. Like, it's just not a thing that you can compute. And so like, just because people don't know what they want um, you know, in a partner can't figure out like who they're going to be attracted to, a computer is not going to automatically be better at that. Whereas people have yeah. the idea that like, you know, oh, well I can't do it. So maybe a computer should, the computer might be just as bad as you, or like, you know, people do crazy mm. things with GPS and follow it, you know, blindly into lakes and different things. Just yeah. because you have no sense of direction doesn't mean you should outsource that right to a computer.
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't
0: direction, So, you know, I'm very empathetic about that. But <laughs> Well,
1: Um, and part of like Kurzweil, just to talk about Kurzweil for one more second. I mean, part of his vision is that it was based on, you know, Moore's, the idea of Moore's law, this, this, this moment when computer power, raw computer power was changing exponentially. Right. I mean, you know, depending on how to define it, it was like every 18 months it was doubling or something like that. And, you know, people went from that truth, which is, you know, why we have cell phones the size it is to like, you know, like. Computing in general, including AI and software, are also doing this, right? But what you've told me in in other situations is that, like, you can get a paper published in a journal where you're making, like, a little 1% improvement or inefficiency, well, often like, right?
0: like it's not a real thing. So one of my yep. biggest pet peeves is um, in a lot of areas of computing, there are these tiny improvements because like a lot of low hanging fruit has been picked and it gets harder as the accuracy improves to make big leaps. That's true. Yeah. Um, and so there'll be papers where there's you know, this teeny tiny less than 1% improvement. But also like, testing for statistical significance is not a common thing. Um, in computer science. And so like, is that actually an improvement? Are you telling me like yeah. 692 is really better than 0.691 with that sample size? Like, people are not used to actually making that argument, which um, collaborating with cognitive scientists and psychologists, they're baffled and appalled by. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, like, mm-hmm. there's no, you know, there's no test for this. No one's worried about like multiple hypothesis testing or any of that. Um, And there's no test of like, you know, robust, maybe you did a little bit better on this one data set, but like, does it work widely on other data sets, right? There are these sort of challenges that people focus on. Um, In health, there's one public data set. And so everything where people compare against other people's work is on that one data set, Um, you know, are those algorithms going to perform the same way on other data sets? Is the best one on that one better, also the best one on these other ones? We have no idea, right?
2: Yeah. And so like
0: it's not even just that it's a, you know, small incremental improvement. It's it might not be an improvement. Um and focusing on like those specific metrics about, you know, accuracy or false discovery rate or things like that, it's blinding you to all the other things that matter about, you know, can it yeah. use it doesn't it help you make decisions. I feel like I'm just giving you more bad news.
1: <laughs> well, I want to make it even worse actually cuz I think that uh I think that what you've told me before is that um you know, like so let's talk about medical records and trying to make inferences from that, right? Or or data we're collecting in in hospitals from sensors on someone's body. Yeah. I think you've told me before that uh in some cases the data is so messy and there's just so much of it being generated that on one project you worked on maybe it was just like people just stopped like uh, capturing it, right?
0: Not even so- stuck, like in some place they didn't start, right? So I've been working with someone um, in neuro ICU at Columbia since 2010. And mm-hmm. then I had a collaborator there who was in pediatric intensive care. He just moved to McGill um, in Canada last year. And we wanted to work on data in his ICU for the last decade. Yeah. They got really close. Uh, They're about to have a partnership um, with a place to collect the data. And it never happened. That data, either you see it, um, a nurse writes something down, um, or you know that's it. It's just gone forever, yeah. and it's not stored because no one has shown that it's worth the cost and time and effort of doing that. But of course, right. with that problem, you can't show that it's useful unless you actually have the data. Um, yeah.
1: Well, I guess what I'm wondering is, like, you know, if you think about medical records or you know other cases where the data is just so messy. It doesn't seem to me like there's a lot of hope that that's going to improve anytime soon, like the messiness Absolutely of these not, records. There's,
0: there's no reason for it. So I teach health informatics in the spring, and you know there it's also like uh, the goal is just educating computer scientists mostly about people um, yeah. and workflow because the goal of medical rec- keeping medical records is not for research, right? Research is very low down on the totem pole. Billing is yeah. number one. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think like- yeah. I would put billing above medical care and improving care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sad but true, what, right? what hospitals prioritize, right? Billing yeah. you know, top dog. Um, and so these things are organized. Things are documented in a certain way for billing. Um, what gets documented is for billing. The way doctors document things is for billing. And so
2: yeah.
0: I talked to one person who said, I can't write that the patient had pneumonia because I wanted a radiology consult. And if I say they had pneumonia, the pneumonia, why do I need the radiology consult?
2: Yeah, right.
0: And so it doesn't even record what the doctor was thinking at that time. At the time they wrote the note, they believed the patient had pneumonia, that doesn't exist in the record. Right? Yeah. Um, and so it's written in a way that things can get paid for. Right. Um, and then, you know, secondarily, actually giving people good care, um, yeah. all of that. And then research is you can use what exists, but you have no ability to transform the process. Because if you tried to, um, you would be... Like, the time the doctors would spend on it couldn't be reimbursed, right? And so who's gonna pay for someone to improve documentation? Also, changing the documentation will influence billing and, you know, medical malpractice yeah. all those things, right? So there's no incentive yeah. anywhere to change the records.
2: It's mm-hmm. about,
0: we have to figure out, you know, as computer scientists or people who are interested in the data or care about it, what we can do with what's there. Um, yeah. The only if you want like a little bit of hope for a bright spot. Yeah. Um, the only place where like things have gotten a little bit better is in some places um, where items are RFID tagged and scanned and so like medications and things like that. And so then that's automatically yeah. captured and a person doesn't have to like write it down or right. remember to record it. And so if you can build something like that into the workflow, like that's helpful for research, but the purpose of it like isn't for research, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You're always it,
1: piggybacking on other exactly. practices. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we can both sound kind of cynical, pessimistic about technological change, but um, technological change, like things having changed, is an important part of your story. So you point out that worries about information overload are not new, like it goes back. Seneca worried about it. They're big time worried about it in the Middle Ages, especially yeah. you know after the printing press. <laughs> um, but what is new about kind of our data environment and and, you know, like our relationship to data in our lives?
0: To me, I like, I think as a hist- I get worried about uh, discussing history with you, you know, much better than I do. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like I'm on the spot. Um, <laughs> no, but no. I think it's, it's access, right? It's not yeah. like, you know, medical journals. Imagine like, you know, in 1970, a patient wanting to access a medical journal, right? That would be extremely hard. Um, there's still barriers now and a lot of things like you have to pay for an article. But you could get that article if you really want, right. You wouldn't have to go to a library, you know, you can Google. There's tons of, you know, people can spend all their time on WebMD or uh, other less reliable places. Right. Um, Right. So your ability to obtain information from all different sources, correct, incorrect, conspiracy theory. Um, There's lots of fun ones. Uh, Yeah, uh, there's a a great cinnamon uh, conspiracy theory video that I enjoy very much um oh yeah there's a, yeah, there's a conspiracy like, it's diabetes, about... but it's like so one of my collaborators uh um, is mm. interested in conspiracies professionally and so we've been looking at health conspiracies yeah um, which is a really fun side project um mm-hmm. looking at the structure of it and the way that they describe it and things like that right you wouldn't have been able to access information like that easily in the
2: past yeah. and so now
0: you know the temptation for like reading one more article before making a decision or you know looking up one more second opinion or yeah you know what does this other website say about it or like going through the comments right and talking to other people about you know particularly in health right your ability to yeah. connect with their patients who could point you to things that are incorrect or create you know sort of bubbles and reinforcing feedback loops with the conspiracy yep. um like that would have been a much harder thing you would have had to somehow find these uh, other crazy people yourself in the wild um bump into them right
1: yeah yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, there were conspiracy theories before the internet, but I mean, I certainly know that the internet helped, you know? It has helped. There's no doubt about did, it.
0: My favorite conspiracy theory book is uh, the one where the psychologist uh, infiltrated the doomsday cult and was there the day that the world didn't end. Um, yeah. It's so, like, that definitely existed, but like, the ability to rapidly identify all these things and find them and overload yourself yeah. with information, is, it's just so much easier. Um, yeah. And, you know, at the same time, like give the messaging about, you know, knowledge is power and all that stuff. Like, I think there's some encouragement to do all this reading and like do the research, right? Find out everything uh, before you make a decision, right? Be an informed consumer. Um, And so there's a pressure to do that and to read all these things because you can. Um, Whereas my work is showing, it's not gonna make you make a better decision and also doesn't make you happier necessarily. So we've also looked at people's confidence in their choices and more information does not make people feel better about their decisions. (laughs) Um, yeah people feel, people feel worse um so it's hard <laughs> and
1: to- i bet they don't know that right i mean if you tell me like i'll give you more information i'll be like that's what i want probably right in life but yeah. it turns yeah <laughs> uh let's talk about fitbits for a second because i feel like this uh this is a good technology to think with in terms of you know uh, we all know the kind of help Health hype that's around these kind of personal, uh, you know, health devices. Yeah. Whether it's you know, I wear a Garmin, you know, other people had Fitbits, uh, you know, everyone's got their thing, but like, what uh, do you do, tell it, from your Garmin what's that?
0: What do you do with the data from your Garmin?
1: Not much, you'd be really disappointed in me. I, I mostly use it to keep track of where my average heart rate, you know, resting heart rate is. Oh, I thought you were like gonna that. say,
0: like, figure out what time it is.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> Uh No. So, um yeah, I mean, like, what, what do we know about Fitbits and, and their effectiveness in people's lives?
0: I mean, so Fitbit and these other devices are like the pinnacle of people thinking information is the solution to their problems and it not being. Um, and so one of my favorite studies was one that randomized people to either use a Fitbit or not and they tracked them it was actually a really long term study it was 2 years um, Whereas a the problem with a lot of medical studies or things about technology are the studies are really short term and so there's this initial like novelty effect right you know that when you first get a device you get an apple watch or something like that it's really yeah. cool you play with it all the time and you're super excited right yeah and then you don't feel the same way about it after 6 months or a year right and it goes totally
2: into totally
0: um, and so a lot of the prior work which is people short term where they might be using it a lot but they didn't capture like when the novelty wears off um and so that study was over a couple of years and people who used the fitbit didn't do as well as people who did not and so having this yeah. like, back all of your steps people lost less weight it was a weight loss study
2: people, yeah. people's
0: goal was to lose weight um, and so people were less likely to achieve their goal using that device than if they hadn't uh, yeah. because again people think it's an information or a data problem they don't think that like so, from one perspective, the data is faulty. People don't really think about how bad some of the data is. Yeah. Um, you know, the classic was uh, people in San Francisco thought found that their Fitbits were saying they were climbing climbing all these stairs. Um, it was the hills in San Francisco. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all these
0: things happen. And you realize, like, it's counting your steps while you're cooking. It's really bad at calculating how many calories you burned for lots of uh, you know boring scientific reasons. Um, but the data is not as accurate as you would need it to be to make decisions about like, what should calorie intake be. And so, you know, people are looking at it and thinking, okay, I burned this many calories. And so that means that I should consume this many calories. But mm-hmm. it's really not that accurate um, at giving you that. And also okay. people are more likely um, when you see that number to overcompensate. And so it's yeah. the same, thing. like, you know, I've trained for a marathon and you think like, I ran 20 miles, like I should be able to have a milkshake and fries and like, you know, the world is like, yeah,
2: mm-hmm. don't
0: think through that, like, I just ran 20 miles. So now I'm gonna spend the rest of the day on the couch, because I'm exhausted. Yeah. Um, whereas normally you'd be moving around and walking and doing other stuff. And so in fact, I'm less active the rest of the weekend than I would be if I wasn't training for the marathon. Yeah. Um, and that you burn a depressingly small number of calories running 20 miles especially as you get <laughs> it's really sad it's like a very big um
2: and so, so do you, you think know,
1: this do you think this explains the paradox i mean like so it seems paradoxical that you'd use a device like this and actually gain weight and i think you had a couple at least another example like this too where people on programs they end up losing weight or gaining weight but you think it's just that they're leaning on it and it's not accurate enough so they're like they're making bad choices
0: because of the technology it's it's both. It's one, it's not, not accurate enough, but also yeah. that people overcompensate and it's not like you're making one decision yeah. and say even if you use it and like you walk more each day, right? You increase your activity, yeah. people don't realize they get hungrier. They're also going to increase what they consume. And so they're thinking of like one decision in isolation about the activity and not all the other stuff. Or that Got like they're tired and so they're going to be less active with other things, and they're not going to get in all this like you know, other
1: sort of daily activities they would be getting. Yeah. So we've talked about uh, the new, the usable, the new field, you're going to create your new empire that I'm, I'm, I'm very much voting for. I hope the NSF funds it. Um, (laughs) What, what do you, I mean, are there, are there changes at the individual level? So me as the person who's going to read your book and, and hope to improve my life down the road, are, do you have kind of advice for, yeah, just, us as individuals moving through the world of information about how we can improve our relationship to data and decisions.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, number one is realizing that more isn't better. Um, mm-hmm. and really focusing specifically on what information do you actually need to make that decision? Um, it's hard for people to do that. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Versus, like, searching everything out and figuring out like you're going to sift through it and find the right answer. Uh um,
2: yeah.
0: but actually thinking like, you know, if you're choosing a school or something like that, what is the thing you need to know? And then, you know, laser focus on that. Um, And then in terms of technology, which again, I think it's really hard if you're not, if you're a lay person who's not developing the technologies, right? If I gave my mom a Fitbit, she wouldn't be able to think through like, what are the ways this might be inaccurate? Where's it gonna go wrong? Like, you know, and so that's not a thing that I think we can expect, you know, people to do better themselves. We need technology to communicate that, right? Communicate limitations or, you know, how to use
1: Um, and the problem there is that the market, I mean, we know the kind of hype you know, was Fitbits, like, right? I mean, like, yeah, it's in the, the firm's interest is to to um, BS us at least, right? I'm
0: not I saying, like, I outright lie. But... Right. There are, I mean, more than, I think, like, two dozen, last time I counted, of these companies where you can send in stool samples or blood or things like that, and they tell you about the diet. Um, you know, lots of people are paying for yeah. this. But like really thinking through what information is it going to give you and how are you going to integrate that into your life? Right. If it tells you to completely change your diet, is that something you're willing yeah. to be able to do? How do you envision using this? And is it giving you the information that you would need? Right. In the way that. Right.
2: You
1: know. Yeah. I mean, this might keep getting too broad and philosophical, but I feel like I was talking to my wife about this the other the other day is that. I feel like so many of us, and I'm including myself here, are in bad information uh, environments about all kinds of things, right? Whether it's how to eat or how to what medicine to take or what supplements we should be taking. And you know our our social networks do nothing for us on this score because like we also live in groups of like-minded people who yeah. are also hoovering up vitamin D or whatever it is, right? And so, It becomes really hard to like even like to know when we're full of it, I guess. You know what I mean? And so it just like there's like a very basic media, not not even like it's like information literacy of like if I'm, you know, if I'm worried about being pre-diabetic or something like that, what should I do? You know, who should I go to? How do I even (laughs) figure out like what what BS is in my noggin? You know, I don't know. It, it, it's enough to, like, send one into a spiral of despair
0: sometimes. Like, figuring out the BS, actually there are solutions. And it's not, that part isn't necessarily the hard part. Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the cool simple ones we used was developed by a psychologist a while ago, um, where they were asking people about, like, you know, how does a toilet work? So people, you rate your understanding. You're like, I know all about toilets, right? I've got this. I've used a toilet. Yeah. Um, and then you have to write out all the steps of flushing a toilet. And people realize they know nothing about toilets. Like yeah, you know, <laughs> there's water involved. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Toilet magic Um And they read themselves again, and the readings drop a lot. Um, uh-huh. And so we do that. We've done that with diabetes and mm. financial decisions and things like that. And doing that process, and but it's only what's interesting is it's only when they have to make a causal story. And so if you're just listing all the stuff you know, like what are the features of diabetes, or you know, list yep. characteristic, or you know, have a person with diabetes it doesn't happen that people drop their reading because you're not forced to connect those dots. And so when you're making the causal story, you actually have to link all these things together and you realize there's all these holes in your story. Yeah. And so like, if you wanted to assess your understanding of a topic, like that's actually a good way to do it. And you don't need someone else to create a device for you. We've done yeah the same, like giving people quizzes about diabetes and you see the same um, sort of effect. Um, but to so there, like you can reveal to yourself how much you know about a topic. Um, by trying to,
1: it's always almost nothing unless you're an expert. It's always, almost nothing. Right?
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) People start off, I mean, people don't always reduce as much as they should. So it doesn't mean that you're going to like come up with an accurate, you know, reflection necessarily, especially we found that in people with diabetes where, you know, you have to become sort of an expert in your condition. Um, since you're an endocrinologist once or twice a year, it's all on you in between those visits. So you feel like you have a lot of experience making decisions. And people can blame experience and expertise. Yeah, um, and so people, even when they do that sort of task, they drop their rating, but not as much as they should based on like their quiz scores. Um, there's yeah. still a lot of faulty understanding there that should probably be corrected. Um, but it's not all bad news there that you can figure out, you know. And it works like also with you know political events and things like that. Um, the same sort yeah. of phenomenon happens that. People, once they have to come up with a story of like, you know, how does a bill become a law or something like that? People realize mm. they, they don't remember the full school house rock and uh, they, they can't describe it.
1: <laughs> You're reminding me of Socrates. It's like when you ask people questions, you realize they don't know anything at all. And hopefully if they're like.
0: <laughs> in, in teaching, right? I never ask, you know, do you understand it or, you know, do you need more information? I ask, like could you give a five minute talk on this topic? Yeah. Um, and the answers to like do i understand it do i need help are all like yeah i understand that i've got it once you ask students like could you give a five minute talk the hands all go down and they realize I absolutely i'm right. going to give a five minute talk on the topic and that's the like the um, i got it from someone else i don't remember who a long time ago but that's the sort of metric i use for gauging understanding um and the that's students cool. get, get really worried that you're going to ask them to give that five minute talk in front of everyone else
1: <laughs> so Here's a here's a question I try to avoid uh, when I'm doing the podcast, but I feel like after this extremely depressing conversation, uh, we should probably. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, like, are there are there anything around uh, anything's around information and and decision making that give you hope for the future for things improving?
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean you know I'm, I'm an optimistic person um yeah. i actually do feel there's a lot of change in computer science
2: yeah
0: um, i mean as a person in a computer science department who doesn't always feel like a computer scientist
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, we don't have anyone in hci in my department hci is human computer interaction, like the word right there um and five years ago i had to argue why hci was computer science mm-hmm. um, and why like that would ha- that should have a home in our department and there was no understanding that like that actually is computing and understanding people is part of computing useful to computing a thing that we should care about and have it was like you know this is like a machine kind of thing people blah, why would you care about that um, and now i think people do understand like you know that even if they don't necessarily care themselves that like the right answer is to care about these things um and all the talk about like, fairness and diversity right there's just much more talk about humans yeah. Um, the people who are like affected by algorithms that you know are even if there's not enough discussion of like who's using it, there's an idea that like people are somehow involved um, and that we should think about people in some way. And so that to me is, is hopeful. Um, you know, I'd love to see like more collaboration between psychologists or cognitive scientists and computer scientists. Um, I'd love to see like more psychologists working on real world decisions and not just like really constrained lab settings. Um, but I mean, I think like that's, that's a hopeful thing, right? That, you know, there is this discussion happening, um, and there are more conferences on whether, you know, I agree that explainability is the right thing or not. Like there are no conferences on this, right? Um, and people carry uh-huh. way about like, even if it's a machine learning user, like the person who's going to be doing something with, with what they produce, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So there's, you know, progress is slow, but it happens. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> It's kind of reminding me that, like, with um, with the automobile, it was around for quite a uh, while before the notion of uh riding comfort developed. Where it suddenly became like an engineering problem, where the engineers were trying to make the ride more comfortable for users. Was it total disregard uh, for comfort at the beginning? I know yeah. But, much- well, I mean, it was just like it was just like it it wasn't like the engineering problem for a long time. It was like, you know, you're just trying to get the thing to work and not break down every because two miles or something work. like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And I all of a sudden, like later, it's like yeah. you have to focus much more on design and packaging and making it nice for people and and all these kinds of things. So you can imagine it kind of being, uh, you know, a maturity, a technological maturity problem too. You know, I mean like this, you know, this cell phone I'm holding up in the apps, you know, this is less than, in some ways, it's, you know, it's less than 20 years old that we've, we've been using these things in our lives. So you can imagine some maturation process, but I don't know. I could give cynical accounts to you, but I'll I'll leave it at that, that we could, there are reasons to think it'll look up, huh? I
0: like the positive account that now we can focus on comfort. I don't know what early automobiles were like, now I'm just picturing like hard benches or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Open. (laughs) And like, there were no tops on them, right? So you got mosquitoes in your teeth and had to wear visors. Yeah.
0: That feels like a lot of computer science. It's like the mosquitoes in the teeth. wearing very advisor.
1: <laughs> Mosquitoes in the teeth.
0: I'm going to have to use that in a paper.
1: 2015. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs>
1: hey, Samantha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for having me. This was great. Even if I depressed you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Ford is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.